Good morning. It is good to be here this morning. I feel like I haven't been here in a while. I was here last Sunday, but I spent the last week at Camp Evergreen. Um, And so I was speaking there to their Sparks Camp, which is ages five to eight. Um, So it's their little camp. And it was so much fun. We got to go, my husband and my son, who's two, we all went and we took my parents' trailer and camped on the site there. And my son was living his best life because to go see the kids, go see the kids. And all of the kids were loving him. And it was was really great. He uh, came to the front during my chapels and just cackled and ran away from his dad who was chasing him, trying to get him to sit down. And it was really fun. It was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it's kind of one of those mustard seed things with kids that age where they're so young and you don't really know what's going to grow from that week of camp. Um, But I do know that there were two children who made a first time dedication to follow Jesus that week. Oh, no, I'm which is really exciting, and um, yeah, it was just a really awesome week that even at the age of five or six or seven that kids can see the life that God has for them and that they want to say yes to that, and so I'm so excited about it. I'm feeling emotional, apparently. Um, The week before I was at Camp Evergreen, uh, well, two weeks before that, we had a day camp, which was awesome and incredible also, and then the week after that, In between camps, I went to Lethbridge to be with my family for a couple rest days where they got to get up with, well, I'd get up with my son and say, here, and go back to bed, which was glorious and wonderful. And um, a few days before we were headed to Lethbridge, I got this text from my mom. Um, I had asked for a new swim outfit because his swim outfit was turning into a bikini because the belly. Um, But then she had sent me this picture that she had also bought him a little pool, apparently. And I, we don't go to Lethbridge that often. We go maybe a couple times a year. But when we go, like, my son has a high chair, and there's this, like, giant mat in my parents' living room with toys, and now he has a pool. And, like, when we go to Lethbridge, like, we are set up. We are home. We see my parents, my sister, my grandma. When we're there, it's home. In today's passage, a son goes back home, but it's not quite a joyous reunion like I have when I go back home. This morning we're going to be in Luke 15, so if you have your Bibles or you want to turn there on your devices to Luke 15, um, that's where we're going to be, Um, continuing in the parables, Luke 15, and we're just going to read the first two verses for now, how the chapter starts off. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So it's in response to this, to this attitude of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that Jesus tells three parables. Parables are a creative story to illustrate lessons. So there's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. There's three lost and found stories that Jesus tells in response to this attitude of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. If you're unfamiliar with the first two, the parable of the lost sheep, there's a sheep who gets lost. The shepherd leaves his 99 sheep to go find the one. And then in the parable of the lost coin, there's this lost coin. The woman turns over her whole house. She finds her coin and she celebrates with her friends when she finds the coin. And Jesus tells these stories to show how when a notorious sinner, a tax collector maybe, turns to God that it is a celebration. And the Pharisees and these religious leaders were having major problems with Jesus welcoming people into God's family. Sometimes I wonder why it was so hard for God's people, especially God's people, to accept Jesus. 
Why wouldn't you be excited to learn that God's family, God's plan is for everyone? Like, isn't that a good thing? However, the more that I've studied this particular story of the lost son, and there are so many layers in this story, when we actually look at it in the context of what was going on, we're only going to be scratching the surface of the layers of the story. But as I understand more of these layers the more I actually am learning to see why the Pharisees and the religious teachers got so riled up by the things Jesus taught. Jesus did not hold back in this story. He thought of every little detail to challenge what they thought about how God worked in their elitist mindsets. So we're going to start with the first verse of the parable of the lost son. That's in verse 11 in Luke 15. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money on wild living. Now, for a long time, I assumed that this passage was mainly about this son, the son who had left, right? In case you haven't heard the story before, he comes back, um, which we're going to get to. But that's what I thought all of these parables were about. Something was lost, and then it was found. But remember, Jesus wasn't teaching this parable to a group of tax collectors and notorious sinners. He was teaching this to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders. He was teaching this to the rule followers. The rule followers are my people. I, I've seen this shirt um, that people wear. It's called, it says, kind people are my kind of people, which is like nice and it's great. Um, but I feel like if I had that shirt, it would say, rule followers are my kind of people. You know, like who just doesn't love like a good, reasonable rule to maintain some function and order? You know, just, just love a good rule. Yeah, I got a few in here. Thank you. This parable is famously known as the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. But today I want to actually suggest that it's more appropriately titled the parable of the lost sons, plural. It was initially less intended to actually be less about the prodigal and more about the older son who stays home that we're going to read about. Probably the most obvious of the cultural things that are going on in this story that we could understand as a bit, or it was really more than a bit shocking, was asking for your inheritance early is like another way of saying, I wish you were dead already, so I could have the freedom to do whatever I want, instead of being stuck here with you. To get a share of your father's wealth while your father was still alive, that was not a thing in Jewish culture. And even if the son did get his portion early, he wouldn't have actually had the freedom to decide what to do with it until his father was dead. So that he left after receiving it was a double shock. And even more, in this little, the first few verses, the older brother isn't mentioned at all. He's missing. We might not notice this. We might just think, okay, there's nothing to do with the older brother. It was between the younger brother and his dad. But Jesus didn't forget to mention him. And the the listeners would have noticed that he wasn't mentioned. Because culturally, first, the oldest son should have loudly refused to accept his share in protest against the implications of his brother's request. And then second... Jesus' listeners would have expected that the older son would enter the story verbally and take the traditional role of a reconciler between his brother and his dad. 
His silence, the fact that he's missing in this part of the story, means he refused to take on that role. And then this suggests that the older son also didn't have a great relationship with his dad. Not only is the father being humiliated by his youngest son leaving, but even more than that, the older son did nothing to do about it. He would have been humiliated, the father would have been humiliated in his community for having two sons that did not respect him. And then the oldest son also benefits from this transaction. He gets his half too in silence. Now that's a lot going on already. But the most shocking of all of these cultural elements would be the father's response to what is happening. After being so completely disrespected, he did what? He said yes? This would absolutely make no sense to Jesus' listeners. It's offensive. It's wrong. It would never happen. The father should have exploded in anger. He should have given the son some sort of punishment for even mentioning this idea. But instead, the father not only gives him the share, but by allowing him to leave, that means there was no agreement about how the son was going to use that money, which means that that son was no longer being responsible to care for that father financially. The father was actually leaving himself vulnerable by this radical act of love, by saying yes to his son and letting him leave. So only three verses into Jesus' story that he's telling, we have the prodigal son's rejection, wishing for his father's death in his request for his portion. We have the father demonstrating an almost unbelievable love by granting this request. And we have the older son's silence, indicating a rejection of his responsibility to reconcile his brother to his father. Those listening to Jesus would have understood this right away, and they would have been shocked by all three of them. So the younger son leaves, and as we read in verse 13, he goes and he uses his newfound freedom to do whatever he wants, whatever he wants. We're going to keep reading verse 14 to 16. About that time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the, man sent into, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs to looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Okay, so we're only another three verses in, and he would have certainly offended his listeners by now if they weren't offended yet, on top of everything else already happening. The son has clearly lost his family's land that he inherited. That was the great wealth of the Jewish people. It was land. He clearly lost it. That was a big deal to Jewish people. It's their most valuable thing that they could have. And so now he's working for a local farmer, presumably a Gentile, on Gentile land. And Jesus is just adding layers and layers to this story. I learned in my research for this that um, the polite way a Middle Easterner gets rid of unwanted hangers-on is to assign them a task that he knows that they'll refuse. So anyone with few, food during a severe famine would have tons of petitioners at their door asking for food every day. But the pride of the prodigal isn't yet completely broken, and to the amazement of Jesus' listeners... The citizen's attempt to get rid of the younger son fails, and he accepts the job of a pig herder. And because he accepts this job, he wouldn't have been able to observe the Sabbath. 
He would be in association with unclean animals, and he was practically forced to renounce the regular practice of his religion. Jesus spares no feelings here, and so not only does he have the son work with the pigs, an animal that a Jew would never eat, but in verse 16, Jesus has the boldness to say that he thought the pig's food looked good. Just, I think, for just a little extra, you know? It's such a simple yet obnoxiously unsettling and offensive thought for any good first century Jew. Unclean, filthy, defiling pigs. I imagine Jesus' listeners got physically uncomfortable listening to Jesus say that he thought the food, pig's food looked good. Next in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. So once the younger son finally comes to his senses, he comes up with what he's hoping is going to be a good enough apology, and his plan is to ask to be a hired hand. A hired hand would fulfill his moral responsibilities to his father, to help his father, to take care of his father. In losing that money and in losing that land, he failed to fulfill those responsibilities. And this is how he wanted to make up for what he had lost. So he was going to try and go home and save himself. He wasn't going to ask for grace. He was going to work. He was going to earn it. He also ensures that he would be a hired hand and that he wasn't coming back home because he knows that everything left at home now belongs to his brother. We can probably assume that him and his brother didn't really get along, that his brother wouldn't be super stoked about him being back. The son had a plan to deal with his father. He had a plan to deal with his brother, earning his keep, not actually coming home. But there was one more problem, and that was the community their village. His entry into the village would be humiliating. It would be ruthless. The prodigal son would be mocked by a crowd. It would gather as flashes of the news went around the village that he was back. He would be subject to taunt songs and many other types of verbal and possibly even physical abuse for coming back to the community, especially after he lost Jewish land. The younger son knew this, and he would just have to face it. So off he went. We're in verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, find the finest robe in the house, put it on and uh, sandals for his Put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead, and he is now returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. And so the party began. The father, who had already been deeply humiliated, runs out to him. A man of his position and wealth would not have ran. Yet he does for his son. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked. But maybe they were like, oh, he's going to run to go yell at him. Nope, (laughs) Jesus wasn't done yet, right? The father's embrace 
promptly followed by the finest robe, the ring, the sandals, was telling the whole town that the father had welcomed the son back into his family and therefore into the community. The son would have been a traitor, a filthy Gentile as far as they were concerned, but those items would have protected him and seriously shocked Jesus' listeners. Now, next, perhaps the listeners would have expected that the father only protected his filthy son so that he could take him home and punish him himself, not leave it for the community. But instead, he asked for the fattened calf, which meant the whole community was now invited to his house for a celebration. They didn't have refrigerators, so that means he expected literally everyone to join in the next few hours. This was a sign of reconciliation the father reaching out for forgiveness to his son. This, of course, wouldn't have been what the younger son or Jesus' listeners would have expected. And we might think that maybe the son chose not to finish his apology because he's like, sweet, I don't have to be a working hand. I can just like go live in my house again. But this actually wouldn't have been an easier end of the deal for him. For him, accepting sonship instead of just servanthood meant that he would be back to being under his father's authority and living off of what is now his brother's property. This would not have been the easier option for him. And this, for that younger son, would have been his greatest repentance, his greatest turning back, not by just working his way to try and pay back what he lost, but by coming home. The lost money wasn't the father's concern, but the loss of his son, the boy who would have no solution to offer other than just accepting his father's love and grace and joining the party properly as his son. Now let's think about what would have happened if the younger son was able to come home, give his full apology, and then he became a working hand. If the father let him do that instead... What would he have gained? He would have gained another of many working hands. Another servant put in his place. But if he decided to go out in a shattering, humiliating demonstration of love, the boy may see and understand his love for him. And if he does that, then the father will have a son. I want us to just all stop and imagine the faces of Jesus' listeners. Like, Jesus pushed a lot of customary buttons with this story. The Father chose grace and mercy and love over being right and respected. This isn't something the Pharisees or the teachers of the religious law were on board with. It would have felt dramatically unfair. I wonder if anyone shouted out about the older son in protest, saying the younger son shouldn't be able to take what's the older brother's share. He already got his portion. Why should he get more? The tension would be building. Then Jesus ends this story with the older brother. And Jesus had a lot to say about him. Because remember who Jesus was telling this story to. The younger son represented the people that Jesus was trying to explain to the Pharisees about extending love to. But the older, obedient son is who the Pharisees would have related to into the story, who Jesus was calling them out to be like. Let's read about it, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. 
And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Okay, already we've got more cultural detail that may go right over our heads that Jesus brilliantly adds to this story. Once the fattened calf was going to be butchered, the whole community needed to know about it. Music would have started before the party as they were preparing the meat to let people know that a celebration was going to be happening that night when the men would all come in from the fields at the end of the workday. Everybody would have known, even if they didn't know why, that a celebration was in order. So the older brother gets in from the fields, he hears the music from his house, and instead of entering his home excited and eager to join in whatever they might be celebrating, he's suspicious. He doesn't go in. Instead, he goes to a servant, not his father, and asks what's going on. And here's how the servant responds in verse 27. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. The father came out and begged him. As we saw earlier, the older son once again chooses to be absent from what was happening. And you can probably guess by now that wasn't exactly customary behavior. So once again, the father extends grace beyond what anyone would have ever expected. He publicly goes out to beg his son to come in. It's a humiliating act that would once again absolutely horrify Jesus' listeners. The father acted in the same way towards both sons. He was willing to set aside his pride and his position in order to attempt a reconciling with his kids. Even though the father extends this act of grace to the older son, this is what the son has to say to his father in verse 29. But he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. In all that time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. In verse 29, the older son says that he's slaved for his father. It points to the fact that he's been doing what he's been doing, not out of love, not out of family ties, but out of obligation. He also hasn't been acting like a son. He has also been acting like a hired hand. And then he has the audacity to publicly claim that he's never once refused to do a single thing you asked me to do. Well, like, I'm the, I'm the perfect golden child. That's kind of what he's trying to say to his dad while publicly humiliating him. And he complains that he's been slaving for years and all he wants is to hang out with his friends. That's the best complaint he could come up with. It seems to him that him just hanging out with his friends is a greater reason for celebration than the return of his little brother. So here we have two brothers. One who is unashamedly disobedient and distant, and the other, who's what one might call a hypocritical saint. He remained in the house, he technically obeyed, but he did it while hating his father. By saying, when this son of yours comes back, instead of saying his brother in verse 30, he's disassociating himself with his family. Things weren't fair 
This was enough to push him over the edge of being quietly and passively obedient. The oldest son was likely most worried about what the return of this other son would mean for his share of the father's wealth, his rights to it. He wanted to make sure things would be fair for him. As I said this week, I was at Camp Evergreen, and we played a lot of different games, and I can tell you what, fairness is deeply important to children. If you're playing a game of tag, and there are two different sides, and if a kid thinks they tagged you, but you say you don't feel it, prepare for a yelling match. And if you step in as a leader and say, okay, it's okay if he says he didn't get tagged, let's believe him, like kids are going to freak out in your face. Or if you choose the other option and say, hey, I saw you get tagged, it's okay, sit down, someone will come free you, it's going to be okay. Also, you're going you're gonna to hear about how unfair that is, because I didn't get tagged, he didn't touch me. Literal tears. I have seen a version of that scenario more times than I can count. We care about fairness. We care about getting the good end of the deal. A lot. And it may not be over a tag game, but I think it's safe to guess that we've all got things that we've complained about not being fair. And even though as we get older, our yelling matches, well, for some of you may have less tears. Mine usually include tears. (laughs) Maybe they get a little more passive-aggressive, or maybe they get a little more proper. But that feeling of this need for justice doesn't go away as you get older. Now, a yearning for justice, is, it's by nature, it's a good thing. It's a God-given thing. God is just. God is fair. That feeling comes from being created in his image and the longing for things to be made right. But in this case, Jesus is poking at that feeling of injustice that the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law had towards the wideness in God's love for all people, including those notorious sinners. Did you see Jesus with the tax collectors? Did you see him with that Samaritan woman? Did you see him talking to that prostitute? Who does Jesus think he is associating with these people, telling them that they're loved, that they're included in God's family? Doesn't Jesus know that God's family is only for the best of the Jews? Doesn't Jesus know about all the rules you have to follow to get God to accept you? He's just walking around, passing out love and acceptance like hotcakes, like it's for anyone. Are you kidding me? And once again, in Jesus' story, the father has a choice. Does he want an obedient worker or does he want a son? I think that if he commanded the older son, get inside, fulfill your responsibilities, I think he would have, the same way he always has. But instead, Jesus ends this dramatic story with these two verses, verse 31 and 32. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. It can be easy to feel like God's love for all people is a loss for us. But it's like when someone has a child 
And then they think about if they want to have another child and they wonder, am I going to be able to love this child enough as much as I love this first one? But then if they have a second child, their love for their first kid doesn't decrease so that they can also love their second. Their love and their capacity to love grows. When someone turns to God, God's love extends. It doesn't get reduced. Or maybe God's love for all people makes you wonder, what's the point of trying to be good if God's going to accept just any random trash? Why would I bother with God if he's going to give what's mine to someone else who didn't try nearly as hard? When we struggle to extend God's love to all people, we can end up treating God's love like it has a limit. Like if we show God's love to those people, it'll somehow hurt us, somehow be a loss for us. I don't know who those people might be for you. I think most of us have a hard time accepting that God might love a certain people or type of people or group of people that makes us uncomfortable or that we think are wrong. Maybe it's because of the way they behave. Maybe we think it's because of their political or their theological views. Maybe it's because of their sexual ethics on either end of the spectrum. You know, those people. It's important to remember that God isn't going to get tricked into loving anyone. God's love isn't a game. He can't be manipulated. God's love is just, it's fair, it's true, it's complete, and it's for anyone and everyone who reaches out to him. Even if it means they spent much of their life far away from him. Or they were wrong about a lot of stuff. God's not worried about the checklist of obedience. God just wants his children back. When you love your father, you obey your father, not out of obligation, but out of understanding that what he's asking of you is for your good. Now, maybe I've triggered a few younger sons by saying that obeying God is for your good. Let's think of it this way. A parent who has no rules for a child would be irresponsible. For example, having something like a limit on screen time could be for the health of your child, even if that child proceeds to throw a full 30-minute screaming tantrum where he sounds more like a dinosaur because he wants to watch more Cocoa Melon. I don't know, I've heard that's an experience that some parents have. Couldn't tell you about it. God doesn't ask us to live by certain standards or act certain ways because he's mean or he just likes being in control. The things that God asks us to do are for our good. Sometimes that good can be obvious to us. Something simple like Matthew 18 is a passage about what to do when you're having a problem with someone. To go directly to that person and then what to do after that, have someone come in and join you. It's basically like, don't solve your problems by gossiping. Go right to the person. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. If you try both, there's an obvious better option. That's something that God has given us, an instruction that God has given us for our good. Sometimes it might be hard for us to understand why God asks certain things of us. God isn't scared of us asking why, why he asks us to do things. Ask away, ask questions. God isn't scared of that. But God leaving us to do whatever we want without any guides when he's the one who created us. He knows exactly how we work, what we need, what we don't. That's not actually in our best interest if he gave us no guides. 
It's not in our best interest any more than a parent who never guides or instructs their child. The younger son was angered by living under his father's authority. The older son was angered by living under his father's authority. Both responded differently to the same discontentment. But the father wasn't looking for more workers. He was looking for sons. Now at this point, surely one of the Pharisees has passed out. Teachers of the religious law are ready to call the Roman guard. Let's have this guy crucified today. Some of them are just like sitting there in shock. What was Jesus trying to say with all of these lost and found parables? Why did he tell such a, such a controversial story? I think Jesus was have, inviting his listeners to see themselves in the story as one of two types of people. One who's lawless without the law, and the other lawless within the law. They both rebelled. They both broke their father's heart. Both end up in a far country, one physically, the other spiritually. The same unexpected love is demonstrated in a humiliating act to each of them. And unlike the first two parables in Luke 15, Jesus kind of leaves this parable unfinished. The coin and the sheep are found. We know the younger brother comes home. There's no celebration for that older brother, which was surely carefully crafted by Jesus to leave his listeners in a place of response. To think about questions like this. Are they willing to accept God's love of all people and realize that it's not a risk to themselves to extend that love? Are they technically being obedient, but without any desire for a real relationship with God? These listeners would have understood repentance as this list of good works and services. Nearly impossible for most, but attainable for the select few dedicated ones. But upon the conclusion of Jesus' story, repentance is now understood as acceptance of grace and confession of unworthiness. Repentance is now understood as acceptance of grace and confession of unworthiness. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't unworthiness in our identity. It's unworthiness by our actions. There's nothing we can do, no list of obligations or rules we can follow, as much as I would love for that to be the way that it is, no amount of work we can do for us to be enough. We are worthy because of our identity, because of whose we are. That worthiness is simply ours for accepting from our Father's outreached arms. Now, God himself became a baby, the most humiliating, vulnerable option he could have chosen, like the guy needed his diapers changed. He grew up in just an average family. No one would have expected that. They would have found that humiliating for God. Then he was rejected by many. He was rejected by those in his hometown. He was rejected by Judas. He was rejected by Peter, who denied him three times. Even those closest to him turned on him. How humiliating. And then Jesus was murdered in the most humiliating and offensive way that any of those righteous listeners could have ever imagined on the cross. God has humiliated himself time and time again. He has made himself vulnerable 
He's extended a hand of grace and love to all people, inviting them to see that they are never too far away. They're always welcome home. Jesus is inviting his listeners and us to see that he isn't looking for a band of slaves to do his work while he sits on a throne. He's looking for children to love and to cherish and to do life with. We're going to close with a song called House of the Lord. And when I was thinking about what song I wanted to end with, I was actually kind of surprised by this because it's a pretty upbeat song. Um, But I would actually love for it to be an invitation. Sometimes for me, worship songs are more of a, or they're just a way for me to find deeper faith than I'm currently living out. I may not be practicing following Jesus as deeply or as wholeheartedly as I want to or as I'm singing about that I'm doing, but I'm declaring it as I sing and I'm asking God to help make it so. This song is about the joy of being home with God and we won't be quiet. We won't be quiet like the older son who didn't go in and celebrate. We'll come along the side, alongside the father as his children. We'll do life with him. We'll celebrate. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We're forgiven, accepted, redeemed by his grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. And even if this isn't where you're at today to declare those words, I would invite you to sing. And as you do, invite God to welcome you to greater relationship with him, to welcome you home. He is calling you home. He's so ready for you to come home as nothing else except his child. Let's stand if you're able and sing together. take a seat for just a minute. Now, where did Jesus's story bring you to today? Where did you see yourself in the story? Do you find yourself struggling to want a relationship with God? Or maybe are you considering leaving the church or never showing up in person again because you just don't see the point of it? Are there people you struggle to extend God's love and grace to because it's hitting some sort of discomfort or disagreement in you? Do you find yourself showing up in devotions or showing up to church or going to a group? It's out of mere obligation. Instead of understanding that our God wants nothing more than to meet with you. He wants to extend his love to you. He wants to be one-on-one with you. He wants to be with you in community. Do you obey God's commands because it seems like the best case scenario for you to get where you want to go, even if it means you're miserable and it's not actually authentic? I would encourage you, run home today. In this artistic depiction of the parable, we see both extensions of love in this story. We see God waiting and ready for you to finally make the choice to come back to him. Or maybe to make the choice to come to him for the very first time. That you didn't even know you weren't home. And if you do, God isn't waiting for you to come to prove your place, to make up for anything. He just wants you to know that if you're ready to come home, he's in and let's do this life together. 
And in this picture, we see God as mother, which is artistically displayed in this particular rendition, because to quote the artist, he says, women can own property in our present day. So he switches it up. I don't think Jesus's listeners were ready for that yet. But we see God coming outside, welcome you to see that you belong in this house of love, and it's not because of what you do. It's not because of that. It's based on who you are. If it's because of what you do, you're still unworthy. But it's because of who you are, if only you're willing to come in. Will you go home today? I might just stand again if you're able, and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that your love is radical, that you would humiliate yourself, you would make yourself vulnerable just to show us how much you love us. So God, whether we're accepting to, we're struggling to accept that love for ourselves or to extend that love to others, we just pray that you would help us take that step to come in, to be home with you, that we wouldn't come home out of obligation, but we would come home because we love you and we are looking to you to show us how you created us to live, to show us this good, abundant life that you created us for. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to come forward. There'll be people on prayer teams to pray with you this morning or turn to someone next to you and pray before you leave this place. Let's go home today. Have a good week.